We have two readings this morning. The first one's from Mark 12, verse 13 to 17. And they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. The second scripture is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. So what we're talking about is the gospel of government. This is a painting. I forgot who it's by, Rembrandt or uh, Rubens or somebody, you know, like probably from 1500s or something. And it's, it's called Jesus and the Tribute Money. So it's the people bringing the coin and saying, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? I thought that's a good kind of uh, lens or jumping off point to, to sort of launch this topic. Um, last week, we used Jesus's conversation with Pontius Pilate about whether he was a king and the kind of kingdom he, he was involved in. It wasn't from this world, and yet it was very much about this world. He's trying to change this world. Um, and so how exactly, um, I'm getting a, something. There we go. How, how should citizens, this is, another, this is really what we're talking about. How should citizens in Christ's kingdom, that's us, engage with or relate to the kingdom of this world? Because we live in two kingdoms if I can use that term. We're citizens in Christ's kingdom, and yet we're also citizens in whatever kingdom, you know, in history you happen to be born in. All of us, uh, I think everybody in here is a, is a U.S. citizen, so we have another kingdom, if you will, or polity, you know, uh, state, government that we're a part of. How do we in, engage the one from the perspective of the other? All right, and I suggested last week that the basic answer to that is that we should be involved but not make an idol of our country or its government or the political processes that we're involved in, okay? I don't think checking out and is trying to be an escapist is the answer. We are all for, I am with Stephen. Uh, and, and by the way, he should not get in trouble. That last cover, more than covered from the standpoint of the guy. I'm not, I don't know what the women think. Did that cover or did he, is, he, is he like in the hole for three weeks? Um, I think he's good. Say all the guys. So you... But this is, this is the point here. We, we've got to be involved, but we're not to be idolaters towards Caesar or the Republican candidate or the Democratic candidate or this platform or that platform. Our king is none of that. It's Jesus. All right? So that's the basic point in these lessons. So another way of putting that is while, while we shouldn't place ultimate trust in our worldly nation or its politics, we should... Uh, try to honor our God-given responsibility to minister to our society, to serve it, seek the welfare of the city, as Jeremiah said to the people of God when they were 
living under Babylonian pagan rule. He still said, seek the welfare of the city. Don't be acting like you're going to get out of here real soon. This is some sort of aberration. He says, you're not. Uh, look out for its good, even though it's pagan. All right? And that's pretty much been the uniform teaching of Scripture throughout um, the biblical history to God's people, no matter what pagan empire they lived in. And if you really think about it, they were never not in a pagan empire. Just go through the, you know, all of it. From the Tower of Babel to Rome, there's some sort of pagan government they're, they're having to exist in, and yet they have a different king. Yahweh is their Lord. All right, and so in a democratic nation, uh, ministering to our society might mean that certain political tools are available to us to do that, that would not have been available to God's people under a monarch or an autocrat or a dictator, a Caesar. But here's what it doesn't mean. It won't mean that the sky is falling if my candidate or my policies aren't victorious. The only person who can make the sky fall is the one who created the sky. And unless he's ready to do that, and, and the scriptures say there's going to be a day when the, the sky rolls up like a scroll, you know, the consummation of all things. Short of that, um, I mean, what was the little book we teach our kids? Is it Chicken Little? The sky is not, we're, we're right when we tell our kids that. Whoever wrote that was right, you know? Um, and we got to remember that because as Stephen said, there's a lot of stuff out there, social media and whatnot, where Christians aren't really acting like that. They're acting sort of like the sky is going to fall if X doesn't happen. And then there's some other Christian going, sky is going to fall if Y doesn't happen. And then those people are supposed to coexist in love with each other. So how do we do that? All right. The spirit of involvement without idolatry, that you know, third path is captured very well, I think, in a first century letter written by an unnamed Christian. We don't know his name isn't extant. It's not signed on the letter. But this is a document that is extant that we can read. It's very interesting because it happens right after the close of the, of the New Testament era, around 180, give, it, give or take a decade or two. He's writing to a pagan friend of his named Diognetus. And Diognetus had, had apparently asked this Christian, how does your service to this Jesus, this Christianity that you're involved in, how does that affect your citizenship in, in the Roman Empire, in your nation? And here's his answer. And I think this is spot on. He says to his pagan friend, Diognetus, there is something extraordinary about the lives of Christians. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through pilgrims exiles, sojourners. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, any homeland is a foreign country. They're not escapist. We're going to be the best citizen you can be. There are several New Testament texts that say to do just that. All right, I'm going to do the best I can do to make everybody thrive and have shalom, to use the Hebrew word. Everybody, the forgotten, the downtrodden, the marginalized, the invisible, the voiceless, not just people like me, all right, in my little tribe. Everybody, that's what Jesus did. That's how he loved. We're to do that without thinking this country is our homeland because it's not our ultimate homeland. At the end of the day, it's a foreign country, like anywhere on this planet will be. All right, so here's, here's a, I think that's the proper tack. But we also saw last week that the only way we can stay on that course is if we keep the word of Christ, not the word coming from our culture, as our ultimate guide. That's got to be our North Star. Too many times believers have allowed their culture to frame the whole discourse. 
all right? To set the terms of the debate, if you will. They just accept the options, the priorities that their moment in history dictates to them. And then with this agenda that has been set by the wars of their culture, they run back to the Bible and cherry pick verses for confirmation that their view's right. Well, what if the issues were framed incorrectly from the get-go? What if the culture war has made the polls the wrong polls? This is what's wrong with splitting the difference thinking. Well, here's one extreme. We, did, we should just be moderate and split the difference. What if the whole choices are wrong? That, that's just like most of history. It's not, how many times has Jesus asked a question and he doesn't give an answer, he reframes the question. Um, and, and I think it was G.K. Chesterton one time who said something like, the problem isn't that we don't have the, uh, the right answers. The problem is we don't have the right questions. It's about, and we just let the culture frame it for us. Fox, CNN, MSNBC, there it is. Okay, what do I do? Well, you told me I'm this or that. Person who doesn't even really study the Bible that much probably from half the other things they all say. But let me go with your marching orders and find out what my Bible says. I'll pluck out little proof text. And then I'll get bent out of shape if it doesn't happen that way. You've already given away the farm if you don't go from the Bible out. So that's what we want to talk about really is not holding my mouth right. Can you all see? Well, it, it, what it says is how we in the kingdom of heaven should relate to the kingdom of this world and its politics. And I'm trying, this is my attempt at a Bible out answer. Going from the scriptures out not the preoccupations of our culture wars back in to the Bible. You follow me? That's the goal here. All right, three more points in addition to the ones from last week. First of all, if we are people who are relating to the kingdom of this world from a Bible out perspective, we should be very wary of all people of simplistic solutions. And I get it. Neurologically, we're wired to look for simplicity. We don't like clutter mentally. We don't like cognitive dissonance where things don't add up. We don't like counter instances that don't go with our story and our narrative. That's how you learn and grow though, honestly. That's what school is. K-12 through college, that's what they're doing. You thought this, well, look here, here's some data. And if you run off and put your head in a, a, in a hole, you're just a, one tick above kind of an animal. That's why we're great humans. We can change. We can think through things based on reality, based on truth. And, and, and we, we need to be very, uh, we need to beware very much of these simplistic solutions. I want you to consider how Jesus answers the question posed to him regarding paying taxes to Caesar. All right, this is Mark uh, 12, uh, Mark, uh, it actually is Mark 12, right? I'm sorry, I have seven on there. So that's probably my fault, Charlie. Um, I, I gave Roxy the wrong verse, I think. Mark 12, 13 through 17. So notice, I'm not going to read the whole thing again because Charlie read it. But the question, when these people come together uh, who are enemies, Jake talked about this, uh, one of the, Matthew Marker, Luke, I don't remember which one he used, but he talked about this incident. And basically, his, one of his points a few weeks ago was, Jesus is like the smartest guy ever, because this is amazing, how he, he eludes their test. You've got the Herodians and the Pharisees who are typically enemies on what to do about Rome um, as a Jew. Um, coming together for what they see is how to take on a bigger enemy, Jesus. And they ask him this, this question to test him, to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's a, that's a microcosm of the question, how do we relate to the government, right? The government, the government does nothing if they don't have taxes. Should we pay them or not? That, that's the question. And Jesus' answer, verse 17, 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. All right? Now, there are, there's a lot of history behind this tax question here. This was neither asked nor answered in a, in a historical vacuum, in a political vacuum. Okay? And a, a, a few decades before this, Roman authorities had deposed the king of, of, of Judea, one of the Herods. They had made Judea a Roman province and announced their intention to conduct a census so that they could figure out the right tribute tax amount that would be imposed on, enforced upon the people of Judea. That's what they're going to have to start paying Rome. Well, that precipitated a revolt led by a man named Judas, not Iscariot. And there were lots of Judases. And Gamaliel, the rabbi in Acts 5, actually refers back to Judas who led this insurrection, led this rebellion. Josephus, the Jewish historian writing for a Roman audience back in the same time, roughly, also discusses this. And he says, mentions this same Judas plus a Pharisee named Saduk. They led this rebellion because they believed, and their, their revolutionaries believed with them, that paying tribute to a Gentile king like a Caesar would be treason to Yahweh. That was Israel's only true king. And the Pharisees weren't going to always go so far as military rebellion, but they did see Roman occupation as intolerable. It's the decline. It's the end of our culture and society if we let this happen. But the followers of this Judas fella, Josephus tells us this, would evolve into a sect of hyper-patriotic Jewish freedom fighters. The Romans would have called them terrorists. They embraced physical violence, assassinations, and that sort of thing as the only way, in their view, to purify the nation, God's people, of the taint of pagan culture, pagan domination, the Roman Empire. And it's very possible, likely, in fact, that this group is the same folks as those described in the Gospels as the Zealots. The Zealots. So by the time Jesus asked this question in Mark 12, the Jews have been debating this question of their proper relationship to the Roman government for decades. Some, like the Herodians here, endorsed accommodation. Just get along, go along, get along. You know, it's a new reality. So they're sort of sidling up with Rome, essentially. Others thought that paying tribute tax to Caesar was nothing less than heresy. So in Mark 7, Jesus rejects their framing of the question. Pay tax to Caesar or not pay tax to Caesar? And he says... Neither one of those. It's not binary. His answer isn't. Now, I'll agree with Jake. His answer is amazing. But can we all agree that this is hardly a simple, straightforward answer? It's almost circular. The question is, should we pay tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, you should pay the part of tax to Caesar that, that is his. And, and, but the part that isn't, you, you don't. Well, that's the question, though. Almost. It's almost a circle. It's, it's an enigmatic answer, to say the least. What's your marching orders politically from that answer, honest, anybody? Go read the theologians, commentators who have commented on this for two millennia all over the place. It gets him out of the trap. But one of the things I think we can, we can safely say is that Jesus, with this answer, leaves us very much, when it comes to the gospel and government, to chew on. That answer in 4.1 or something. It's an, it's, it sort of reframes it and, and asks us not to think too simplistically, among other things. So we got to be careful of that. Now, let me give you an example of, of oversimplifying these issues that have got our culture so fraught with angst. One, of, one simplistic answer is to just assume that sim, a single issue political approach is the right way. 
I'm gonna be a single issue voter. There've been a lot of those in American history. Prohibition party was a party, all right? And there's a lot of folks today who think pretty much just this person or that person is for this issue, that one's against this issue. Let me suggest that with all the things that involve human society, with all the issues out there, with all the things the Bible says, that's a simplistic approach. Wouldn't that contradict Jesus's answer about Caesar and the tax? I mean, Caesar did all sorts of things, endorsed all sorts of things that were evil. But he also did some good things. Roman roads were amazing. It made the spread of the gospel. You know, there, there were all sorts of things Rome did that were amazing, were good, they're good for humanity. They did all kinds of awful things like crucifying thousands of people at once. That's the bad category, right? So how is this a, sing, a, a simple answer that warrants a single issue politics? And more than that, the Bible teaches many things on many topics. Let's just take the issue of abortion. Pro, I'm pro-life all the way. Uh, uh, duh, I think you would know that. For, for reasons like this, Psalm 139 says that God formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. All right, you can see the fearfully, wonderfully made human before birth. All right? And when you look at all the Bible has to say about protecting the vulnerable, it, it, Yahweh in the Old Testament is especially sensitive to the plight of the vulnerable. The widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the poor, you know, th those are like in almost every prophetic rebuke of the nation of Israel and Judah. You've forgotten these marginalized people who can't help themselves. They have no voice, no agency. They have no power. You can crush them. Nobody cries out. God sees. Who is more vulnerable than the unborn. It's amazing to me that people who care about the vulnerable and the marginalized sometimes have a blind spot with this, it appears to me. Speak up for those who have no voice, says Proverbs 31.8. Who has less voice than somebody who hadn't come out of the womb? For the justice of all who are dispossessed. All right, so there's one issue. The Bible addresses that. We should care about that. Is that all the Bible says about the vulnerable and helping the vulnerable? No, it also says a lot, in fact, a lot more, honestly. I don't think abortion was like, you know, as big a deal, so why would it say as much? But it says a whole lot about helping and protecting the vulnerable human beings who've already been born. What about that? Isaiah 1:17, among many passages, God's people are to seek justice. Which doesn't just mean in the Bible, mishpat, these Hebrew words do not just mean don't cheat people. It includes scales and things like it. Way more positive than just don't be bad. You can't just not shoot people and not cheat them and be called just in the Bible definition. It's correcting oppression. That's an active thing. It's bringing justice to the fatherless. Like you're seeking out ways to do that. That's part of your calling of loving your neighbor. You're pleading the widow's case. You don't have to be the widow or make somebody a widow. You plead her case. You didn't make the fatherless fatherless, but you still bring justice to them. Those kind of verses are all over the place, actually. So there are a lot of vulnerable groups who have, you know, they're outside the womb. What if your politics is just single issue? Pro-life, that's it. Well, the Bible says a lot about all kinds of other issues. 
that it, it's not either or it's both and you see my point it's not as simple as that um and uh, you know you look at all the things in the old testament about sabbath years i mean when yahweh had a chance when the lord had a chance in the old testament to arrange his own nation the nation of israel he told them not to out of the spirit of loving their neighbor as their self because he was the lord that's how he loved to not you know glean and reap the edges of their fields to leave them for the poor and the immigrant they had a sabbath year every seven years and then a jubilee year after seven sevens the 50th year after 49 when they were supposed to uh, release debt debt's over um you give back land to the original family it, you know people get in hot water economically and they have to give it up and some of them indentured themselves slaves go free it's like a reset every seven years every 50 years we were talking about this in our men's class if that were a if there were a political candidate today saying those things you know what people would be saying that's redistribution of wealth that's exactly what it is and that's what Yahweh chose to do in the one theocracy he has ever originated. I don't know how much that fits our modern questions. I'm not saying all that. I'm just saying this isn't like some slam dunk binary question. That person does that issue, check, there it is. There's a whole lot of issues and questions and a lot of Bible passages that come into play. All right? And then when Jesus comes in Luke 4, he basically says, I am bringing jubilee. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting here from Isaiah 61. Because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus says at, home, at His home synagogue in Nazareth, good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then this last phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, is most likely talking about the year, year of Jubilee. Some scholars say the Jews never actually kept that. It's hard to do that economically. Right? I got you owe me all this money. We signed a contract. You're gonna let it go. People not lending, you know, there's warnings in the Bible, but don't don't not lend just because Jubilee's coming. Still got to help your neighbor. It's not just all about profit motive. Not not in the Hebrew uh, world, it wasn't. I mean, there's just too many te texts that don't fit that. So again, we got to go from the Bible out, not what we're used to back in and start cherry picking verses. You, anybody can do that. As we saw last week. The Nazi party in the 1930s had a German Lutheran church counterpart called the Deutsche Christen, which cherry-picked verses that worked for them, especially the ones about obey the government. Six million people lost their lives based on that logic. So we need to be wary of simplistic solutions. Given just what the Bible says about the issue of pursuing the welfare of all human beings, where on our political spectrum should that put me as a modern Christian living in America with its issues and questions? For a Christ follower, it may not be as simple as hearing the shrill voices from left or from right. That's my first point. I, I know I'm going to make some people mad. I said that last week. Uh, I don't want to. Uh, that's like, my point is actually the opposite, as, as you'll see. And I hope so last week. All right. We, above all people, second point, should model civility. The Lord's church should be just a, 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 an example. It should exemplify what it looks like to be civil. And this means that we won't demonize those of different political persuasions. We do live in a time of culture war. And one of the collateral damages of that war is an overly um, kind of dichotomized thinking. It's all over here or it's all over there. It's binary. It's black and white. 
And it, it's a kind of us versus them mentality to the point that we're all in these news silos with algorithms, you know, in, you know, just sort of insulating us ever more every time we click on something, not even giving us the data from another perspective half the time. And that goes, that's left and right. This us versus them. And we typically think the us are the good guys, clearly just through and through, and the, the them are the bad guys. That's a dichotomized way of looking at the world that is not going to result in civility. If you think everybody who thinks different from you is evil, it's going to be hard to be civil. And, and it's coming back the other way, other way too. One reason that it's unwise to get swept up in all the angry rivalries of, of our age is what we just talked about. These are complicated decisions. And as history has shown time and again, some of these seemingly obvious positions, honestly, folks, are probably not going to age as well as you think, as well as I think. I'll give you an example. It was obvious, and I'm putting huge quotation marks on that, it was obvious to most white Christians in antebellum America that race-based slavery was ordained by God. It was a massive biblical pro-slavery industry. Not just in the South. Princeton University cranked that stuff out. All right? The people saying, you know, this is actually unbiblical were really a small group at the beginning. It was mostly African-Americans for obvious reasons. <laughs> I'm reading different verses than you're talking about. But even the, the, the white evangelical anti-slavery movement that emanated from New England was at first looked upon by most Americans as kooky. They're going against what's obvious. Praise God, nobody thinks that's obvious now. Race-based slavery, you're enslaved because of the color of your skin forever and you can't get out of it? Where's that in the Bible? Selling people's babies down the river? That's called man-stealing in Deuteronomy. It's a sin, actually. Not to mention all the sexual sin that happened on plantations. I mean, I'm not going to get into all that. I'm just saying, there was a time when that was just obvious. It's in the Bible. It's God's Word. I'm not kidding. Go read about it. I've got many books if you want to check this out. I've nerded it up on this for a long time. This was like the mainstream view, and now we go, what on earth? Who's saying that right now? About, who's going to be saying that 20 years about us? Be careful with what looks obvious. Because our culture can put lenses on our eyes and we look through those rather than the eyes of Jesus. I love that, that I've never heard that song, but I love that image. We're looking through other eyes at the Bible half the time that we got from our culture, not from something else in Scripture. Another reason we should be careful not to uh, demonize whatever you regard as the other side, whoever that is, it probably varies for different people in this very building, is that the New Testament calls Christ followers to be known for their kindness and their gentleness. That should be just a, 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 a kind of Christianity 101 trait. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, Peter writes, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep passions of the flesh in your mind for a minute. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of his visitation. We're modeling a different kind of sensibility, a different kind of behavior, a different worldview, a different hope that gives us a different conduct vis-a-vis -vis the nations around us, the Gentiles. Now he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't be too quick to think sexual sins, curse words. All that kind of stuff would be included here. But remember what the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh uh, uh, text in Galatians 5 says? 
The works of the flesh, Paul says, are evident. And there are several of them that are you know, about moral purity. But look what I've got highlighted here. We often forget that the works of the flesh, being controlled by the passions of the flesh, the urges that come into your gut, just following them because you feel them, leads to enmity. Does this sound like now at all to anybody? Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. That's just almost a snapshot of our culture right now. But look at this, verse 22, Jesus, or Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is animating you, it's going to look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, things like gentleness. Is politics exempt from this? Is there some footnote in a Bible that I haven't noticed that says, unless it's politics? Don't think so. We need to resist jumping to conclusions about the motivations of those who have different political views than us. Rather than casting these sinister aspersions on somebody who disagrees with you, who has a, the different letter behind, you know, in their political party, a different candidate they're for, rather than casting these aspersions about wickedness, Paul said that love entails, I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 13, believing all things. And that means that you're assuming the best, not the worst, in people's intentions. That's part of love. And God is love, 1 John. The two great commands are love. Love God, love your neighbor. So a definition of love, a chapter-long definition ought to perk our ears up. And one of the things he says is, we're, we're not the people who have a cynical, negative, detective's take on anybody who disagrees with us. Be willing to be a little bit gullible. I mean, believe all things. There's a hope that we have that's more important sometimes than whether you've rooted out, you know, whether somebody really had some, what do we know about somebody else's heart anyway? But we're told to believe all things. Let me give you an example, concrete example from our present political discourse. Most Americans, I think, if you just had to do a survey, I bet you the vast majority of Americans would say they want to end poverty. If you just said, would you like poverty to be ended? Yes. Who's going to say, no, I like it. No, they're going to say yes. So that's their heart. That's their, you know, that's their motivation. I want to end poverty. And indeed, helping the needy, as we know, is an exceedingly biblical objective. But how do you do that? How do you best help the needy? How do you best uh, reduce the number of impoverished people in, in, in the country, in, the, in, you know, in our society? That's a, that's, a, that's a tougher question. And at the polls, at the extremes of this, by the way, it's an age-old debate. Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton are arguing about that in the you know, 1790s. At the polls of that debate, maybe we could say on one end is a kind of a pure free market capitalism where you have the, the, just the most minimal government imaginable. That's never really happened. They tell you that first day in economics, there's no such thing as pure free, free, uh, you know, free market, but theoretically, and the rhetoric's definitely out there. But I mean, you can go to the, the, the most laissez-faire political president we've ever had, and they get things like balanced bu um, you know, out-of-balance budgets and uh, you know, giant de uh, deficits and government subsidies for their pet industry. I mean, but uh, anyway, on paper, somebody could make an argument that you know, a free market, it, you know, it doesn't matter what the slice of the pie is, the whole pie's getting bigger. It's the best way to grow the economy. And they have arguments for that. 
Um, I have to tell you, I'm convinced by some of that. I, I think the market is a beautiful thing. That's just my take. It doesn't matter what you, whether you agree with that or not. I'm just saying, I don't want you to think you got me pegged. Don't you do, I guarantee you do not have me pegged politically. I don't have a home. <laughs> it's all over my brain. Ping, ping, ping. Used to, simple in, in the 80s for me. Um, but it's, I'm getting dumber as I age, I think. Um, but that's one, that's one sort of strategy or, or um, you know, policy answer to the question, how do you eliminate poverty? At the other end is, you know, bigger, bigger government to the point that you get something like socialism, where the government has a huge part. They're not just a referee, they're a player. They're redistributing wealth and, uh, you know, fine tuning the economy in all sorts of ways to eliminate poverty. All right, that's, that's the goal of both. Absolute laissez-faire uh, free market on one end, social, total socialism on the other. They're all saying we hate poverty, all right? So the motivation of both may be to commit themselves to helping the poor. But here's what's going on nowadays that we need to be careful about. It's very common nowadays to demonize the other side. It's not just you disagree with them and think that's bad policy. That isn't going to work. Your view isn't going to work. That's, that's fine. But we demonize the other side. As if this business of eradicating poverty is just the simplest, most straightforward thing in the world. Like we're the first people who ever thought about that. How do you help the needy? Well, here's slam dunk, really. And as if you can know the other person's heart. So a progressive might say, that conservative must hate the poor. You heard any statements like that? I have. That conservative who doesn't want my government program, they just hate the poor. How do you know that? On the other side, a conservative suggesting that even the slightest move in the increase of government is going to be demonic socialism. And to talk about the word socialism as if it's from the devil, that's very interesting. Where is that coming from? That it's from the devil. Throughout history, Christians in America, that's the only ones I really know much about, have had very diverse ideas about the moral merits of using government in a bigger and bigger and bigger way to help needy people. If you go back to the 1890s, early 1900s, the red states in America, where the evangelicals and fundamentalists were in droves, not the coasts, were the ones calling for big government being accused of socialism. Um, they were for redistribution of wealth. They thought the enemies were the large corporations. They were called the populists, then the progressives. They, they had a leader named William Jennings Bryan. Um, go read about it. It was the flipped, exactly flipped from today. I'm not commenting on what's right or wrong, good or bad. I'm just saying that this is more complicated than we think it is sometimes, and we need to model whatever we vote and however we think civility. You know, Billy Graham in the 1950s, the early Billy Graham, he changed a lot over his, his career, but did these, these uh, this is the height of the Cold War. So you've got Soviet, the Soviet Union, which is its own animal. <laughs> they can call that socialism they want. Look like a dictatorship to most you know, people who studied it oppressing their people, you know, starving them to death, sending them to gulags and concentration camps and so on. Billy Graham in the 1950s, every week on his radio program was identifying Soviet communism and all leftism with Satan. But if you back up to the 1890s, Francis Bellamy, who was a Baptist minister, who by the way, authored our Pledge of Allegiance, was part of a movement called Christian Socialism, which is a big movement. 
They thought the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount lent themselves toward socialism. That's, there's actually lots of examples of that in Christian history. What's the answer? I'm not an economist. I don't know. I can give you my take. It's, a, it's worth about you know, all the change in your pocket probably. But that's not my point at all. In terms of policy questions, how much government versus how little government should be involved in helping the needy, those are important questions, but they're not simple questions. And as we engage all that, we above all people should be modeling civility. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. Demonizing somebody you disagree with is not peacemaking. Under any definition, as far as I can tell. All right, real quickly, the third point is this. If we're going from the Bible out, our highest loyalty as citizens in the kingdom of Christ should be to Jesus Christ, not to any political party. And this is an area where we'll all on paper say, that's right, clearly. But what are we gonna, what are we gonna do when we go home and it's you know, Tuesday morning and we're sitting in front of our computer screen? If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. If we behave in terms of our emotions, are we giving into those passions, enmity, strife, all the anxiety and irritability and all that, or is it love and peace and joy and gentleness? That's a bigger, a bigger you know, gauge of whether our highest loyalty is actually to Jesus or to something else. If I can just say that. So loyalty to Jesus takes precedence over loyalty to party. Too often that's not the case among American Christians of late. We'd be putting our heads head in the sand to say otherwise. Because otherwise, how do we explain Christians being just as caught up in this anger and strife within our culture as non-believers, sometimes more so? How do we explain churches splitting over politics, over masks, for goodness sake? You, don't, you mean to tell me that loyalty to party isn't bigger than loyalty to Jesus if a church can't even figure out a way to respond to a virus which doesn't give two cents who it infects, and yet we've made that. I mean, we are not standing up in general and saying, America, here's a third way. We are going the route of the culture wars. We're, we're a pawn in somebody else's game half the time. Loyalty to Jesus must take precedence over loyalty to party. Where is the vaunted fruit of the Spirit when it comes to politics? The church of Jesus should be a shining example of something better. Proof of heaven's power to transcend such earthly discord. When Jesus left heaven to dwell among us, He modeled a new way to be a human being. He called disciples to love one another, to be unified in Him. One great example is, I'm not going to read this whole text, it's just one of the lists in the three synoptic gospels of the disciples that he called. And he called to him 12 disciples. I'm not going to read all the names, you know many of them. One of them was Matthew, the tax collector, verse 3 of Matthew 10. Another, verse 4, just it says in passing, Simon the zealot. Think about that for a minute. These aren't just two people who are generally on Jesus' side. One lives in California and one lives in Japan. No, they're the 12. They're walking around with him. They're eating their meals with him. They're camping where he camps. 
These are intimate. These are the 12. And right there in the middle of the 12, you got a guy who has worked for the Roman pagan dogs, according to the Pharisees and according to the zealots, whose whole MO was to assassinate them surreptitiously in a giant crowded marketplace or the temple courts or something like that. They're freedom fighters. And you got a guy working for the folks who think that guy's a terrorist. I don't know how you want to imagine what a modern parallel would be, but however far you can imagine two people being political opponents and then working together in the most intimate way, you, you probably haven't even come close. These two, Matthew and Simon, differed on the politics of their day about as strongly as two humans could possibly disagree. They are complete polar opposites on the issues of their day, the hot-button issues, the hottest of hot-button issues, polar opposites. And they're working together because Jesus takes precedence. Jesus is so big and beautiful and glorious that he just eclipses and makes us make small all these things. They look, begin to look petty. Sure, be involved. We need to be. That's part of our calling. But it makes idolizing those kinds of things look actually ridiculous. And the church will always be a place where we have people with different political persuasions. It always will be. It always has been. And you know why? Because the church is composed of human beings. And we human beings are a diverse lot. We have a million opinions on a million different topics, don't we? I mean, we can't agree on sports teams or barbecue or cats and dogs or the Oxford comma or a zillion other things. I mean, how are we gonna agree on like what makes humans thrive? That's like the big question. We're called to try to our best to answer that question but to do so from the Bible out. But I want to assure you that Christians just in American religious history have been all over the map politically. If you think Christians have always been conservative, or if you think, well, Christians have always been the most progressive, I'm just going to, I don't mean this in an ugly way, but just I, take my course, audit it, I'll let you be free. I mean, any, any court, read anything on this. It's just not, that doesn't come close to the truth. They have been back and forth all over the map throughout history. But there's one thing with all that constantly changing mumbo jumbo about politics, one thing should be constant. And that is an inviolable, sacred unity in Jesus Christ. Paul said this, and we'll close. Here, in Christ, there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. We could add Republican, Democrat, That, that's not what gives us our identity. That's not the object of our highest loyalty. He says, but Christ. But Christ is all, and he's in all. Put on then. Okay, so here's the, here's the barometer of whether you've done that, whether you think that way, really. Not what you say. Put on then. Put on this kind of clothing. Be this kind of person. Have this kind of behavior. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Practice that this week. Imagine the person who is your polar opposite politically and think, how can I show that person compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience? And we should do that both ways. We have people all over the political spectrum in this church. And I think to this point, we have modeled a commendable unity. And I, I take great 
part in that, but let's, let's keep on as things heat up down the stretch here. All right. We don't follow the elephant, as somebody once wrote. We don't follow the donkey. We follow the lamb. Amen? All right. Thanks a lot for your attention today.